Um, okay, so uh, with, with, the, with the teaching this morning, I want to talk about Mr. Noah. Good old Noah. Do you remember that story? You probably haven't heard about that story since you were in Sunday school. It takes you way back. And one of the things I did too, and, and you know, Aaron and Jenny, I didn't get those out to you, but I, I texted all my sermon notes to you guys. So the church has them. I don't know if anybody, if you need them or if you want to airdrop them or just, just kind of as a, a way to, to help keep everybody, you know, one of the things I've learned, even for myself, where you just get that little bit of distraction and, and you kind of look away and then you could get lost pretty easily in the sermon. So um, just as a way to kind of, there's no surprises at the end. There's no, you know, hidden. So just a way to, to track and kind of see where we're going in the sermon. Um, and then you'll see how much I missed. <laughs> so it'll keep me a little accountable on what I, so I don't know, we could start off with, with you know, with my, with, with Tom Hanks. And we talked about him a couple weeks ago. We just talked about the the films and the film that I was thinking about this week, obviously with Noah is Evan Almighty. Do you remember the good old Evan Almighty? And then the ARC, an acronym that they use in that. I, I, I seen that movie. How old is that movie? 10 years? Yeah. Somewhere in there. Probably more than that. Um, and then I was like, well, I don't, I remember there, he was a politician and then there was the acronym, the ARC, a random act of kindness was the whole ARC Active random kindness? Active. There we go. Acts of random kindness. So if you guys want, we could just go back to our house and watch um, Evan Almighty. We have better things to do. I, only, I want to talk about three things this morning. And I want to talk about um, one of the things that was really interesting to me as I began to kind of restudy and relearn this Noah account was just all the various flood narratives that happened in the ancient Near East. Right? So you had all these flood narratives. I also want to kind of hit that motif of repetition with variance, with creation, with decreation. And then lastly, I want to talk about how long they were actually in the ark, because that was another one of those things that was a little bit surprising to me. So the first thing I want to talk about, though, this morning is I want to go back to these various... I want to talk about these various flood narratives, and it might be time for me to get some new expo markers. Um, various ancient Near Eastern flood narratives. And here's why I say this, because, you know, I, I was thinking about flood narratives as reality TV in the early 2000s, right? Every network had reality TV. Every network had a spinoff of reality TV. They had spinoffs of the spinoffs of reality TV. And in the ancient Near East, you had all these everybody had a flood narrative. Every culture had a flood narrative. And what you learn when you actually study all the different flood narratives is that many of the cultures actually kind of almost had a, a shared pool of information that they would draw from, right? So for example, here's the ones that, and I think you guys again have those, you have the Babylonian, and then you have um, the Athrahasis, You have uh, the Sumerian, you have the Mesopotamian, you have, um, did I get all, all of them? And then obviously, you know, we'll kind of talk about the Bible as well too and how that, how that plays in. So for the Babylonian, you, you know, just a couple notes on this. The motivation is hidden or unknown. 
right? We don't know why the God or the gods chose to flood the earth. The hero is, and, and by the way, as I'm saying these, just listen for things that might be similar to the biblical narrative. The hero is pious, or he's righteous. He's a righteous person. Um, the genealogy, the, the genealogy of the hero, he's, he's of royal descent, but he's also the 10th generation from the inception of humans, right? What's fascinating too is if you look in the biblical narrative, Noah is the 10th generation from Adam, right? So you kind of have a little overlap there. The flood length here is six days, right? Um, after those, that flood, uh, in, in this Gilgamesh epic, in this Babylonian narrative, the, the hero sends three birds out to go find land. Does that sound familiar as we think about these flood narratives? Um, in the Atrahasis, the motivation for this flood is the earth has become overpopulated, right? Again, the hero is a pious or a righteous person. He is of royal blood, just like the Babylonian epic. Um, the flood length here is seven days, um, a little bit one day longer than Babylon. In the Sumerian flood epic, the genealogy, royal blood, the flood length is seven days, just like the Atherhasis. Here's what's interesting. Here's a motivation in, in this one. This is the um, Sumerian flood epic, is that there's a god, right? A god, Enil, and he can't sleep because humans are making too much noise. So he needs to flood the earth so he can get his rest, right? Um, in the Mesopotamian, humanity is actually all wiped out, but because the gods, the forces up there, are kind of battling or, or, or tricking one another, a, a small he a hero is saved. And so you kind of have that again. You have the royal blood genealogy. Now, here's where we get to the Bible, right? In the Bible genealogy, Noah is, he's righteous, right? But he's not royal. We understand that the motivation for the flood is moral corruption, right? It's the sinfulness of humanity. We'll talk about that in a little bit. The flood length here is 40 days. Um, what's interesting though is all the ships, all these um, narratives, they use kind of more of a traditional ship, a ship with a, a sail, a ship with a rudder. And you know, you kind of have this image of this hero um, sailing, you know, sailing his people to safety, right? You have this image. Um, but in the ark narrative, in the biblical narrative, the ark just drifts, right? The ark is just a giant boat that just kind of drifts. There's no sail, there's no rudder, nobody's steering it. Um, Noah is also, the biblical narrative is also the only one in which just the family is saved. These narratives, it's the family, it's the friends, it's the slaves, it's the relatives. You kind of have a little bit larger of, of a salvation piece. But in the Bible, it's just a family that gets saved. And again, as I mentioned before, Noah is the 10th generation from Adam. So when I talk about this various flood narratives, one of the things I wanna say about, I wanna say two things about this. Um, again, everybody had one, right? Sometimes we, you, know, you kinda of look back and you think about the biblical flood narrative, like, oh, it's just, it's just, you know, just everybody, it's just like reality TV in the early 2000s. Everybody had a flood narrative. Here's the main difference. The man, the myth, the legend. Good to see you, Brian. Um, here's the difference I would say between the biblical um, flood narrative and all the other narratives is that all the other narratives end in chaos they end in um, they end in, in confusion in appeasing gods 
the biblical narrative is the only one that points forward, right? It ends with Yahweh making this promise and this covenant to Noah and his family. The flood story, I would say, is about a relation, is about a God who wants relationship. He wants salvation. He wants um, covenant. A God who is being understood in this time and age as being better, kinder, um, kind of a joke, more colorful with the rainbow, right? But he's, he's there. And if you think about these various flood narratives, I would say the Bible flood narrative, right? It's primitive. It's just like all the other ones for the most part, right? It's, 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 you know, it's flood and it's hero and it's divine and it's birds and it's, you know, people being wiped out, right? But at the same time, the, the Bible flood narrative is absolutely the most progressive, is absolutely the most progressive. It's pointing forward. It's guiding us to a new place. It's showing us a new future. It's showing us a God who wants to be understood in a different way. So when you think about all these various flood narratives, I would say that the Bible is primitive in the sense that it's all like the other ones. Everybody had one, right? It's progressive in the way that it points forward. Another really helpful thing that I just want to hit on for a second, because we've talked about this before. Um, Whenever you encounter some of what we would say are the primitive Old Testament stories, the primitive Old Testament narratives, it is very, very helpful, right, for you not to, uh, we might be done with Expo markers today. It's very, very helpful for us not to look back in disdain and disgust, right, because sometimes it's easy just to look back and say, oh man, you know, God, how could God do that? What was God thinking? He killed everybody. And it becomes this primitive. And we can always look back with disdain and disgust. But what would it look like for you as a reader or a, for a person in that time to encounter this biblical narrative of the flood, to counter Noah's narrative of the flood, which ends in the progressive uh, covenant, the promise, and the blessing, right? So, I always say this, and we've talked about this before, don't look back in disgust, right? Enter into the narrative where it is and ask yourself, God, where are you leading your people there and now? Where are you leading them, right? Okay, that's part one. Next thing I want to talk about is creation and decreation. Creation and decreation. Um, you know, we've, we've been talking about this kind of repetition with variance piece over the last couple months, over the last year. I got to say it's been one of the most um, helpful insights for me as I read the Bible is to understand how the Bible references itself, how the Bible looks back on itself, how the Bible um, kind of repeats itself. But it always will just kind of shift it. And, and the Bible uses this as a way to help its listeners, its readers, those who are engaging with it, um, just have that traction over and over again, right? So we've been looking at this repetition with variants, and one of the main functions of the Noah narrative, again, is to use this, this technique, but it wants to tell us a little bit different of a story, and that is the story of creation 
and decreation. And you see what it does is it's Genesis 1. And if you're looking at the notes, you'll see all the Genesis 1 references. And then you have Genesis 6, right? All the Genesis 6 references. And you see in Genesis 1 how humanity, um, animals, water, um, what, else, what else we got over there? Food, blessing. You see how in Genesis 1, all of these are created, right? And then in Genesis 6, all of these are decreated, right? So for example, in, in Genesis 1, 1, 6, and 7, right? God creates heaven and the earth, and then he creates humans in his own image. And then in Genesis 6, or sorry, Genesis 7, 11, what does he say? He says, I've seen the sinfulness of humanity and I will wipe them from the face of the earth, right? So you see creation, decreation, you see him creating the animals, right? He decreates the entire animal population except for the two that are saved in the boat, right? You see him creating water, separating water in Genesis 1, right? He has a, the brilliant piece where he's making the water and separating water. And then what does he do? He decreates water in which water is now uh, just covers the entire earth. Food, the way that food is used in Genesis 1 versus the way that food is used in Genesis 6.21. Blessing, there's blessing in Genesis 1.28. There's curses now in Genesis 6.13 through 17. Um, and as you watch the water rise, right, as the earth floods and floods and floods, you almost get a sense that God has decreated everything back to Genesis 1-2, when at the very beginning of the narrative, the earth is formless and without void, right? And the water just covers the earth, right? Remember that at the very beginning, the earth is formless and void and water covered the deep. It's just all water, right? So you see this narrative being decreated all the way back, but it doesn't stop there, right? If you go to chapter eight, verse one, something kind of fascinating picks up there. Chapter eight, verse one, we're gonna get a glimpse of what I would say is recreation. So creation, decreation, and then you get in Genesis eight, one, a recreation. Don't you guys worry, I'm coming back next week with new Expo markers. You get a glimpse of, of recreation. So 8.1 says this, it says, God remembered Noah and the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded, right? So that word wind, right? In Hebrew, it's this word ruach, right? It is the same word that's used in Genesis 1-2, about that spirit, that wind that's hovering over the deep, right? And that wind that hovers over the deep, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that creates life. It's that mother hen that's um, kind of brooding over her chickens, right? Or that, that eagle that broods over her nest. Um, you see this wind again starting to blow on the water, right? And it starts to separate the water from the land. This is all Genesis 1 language, right? The writer here is showing us creation in Genesis 1, decreation in Genesis 6 and 7, and then it's starting to show recreation 
in Genesis 8, 1. Um, one, th- one thought here that I, I would kind of talk about is in Genesis 6, uh, 12, I thought this was really fascinating in Genesis 6, 12, and 13. Um, this phrase that, that God uses, if you've got a Bible, Genesis 6, 12, and 13, where God says, um, God sees, God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Right? God says, I am going to destroy the people and the earth. Um, there's a commentary that I like to read. It's, I have the Genesis version. It's called the JPS. It's, called, it's a Torah commentary. So it's only on the first five books of the Bible. One of the interesting things about this commentary is this commentary is the real deal. It reads, it reads right to left. You read it this way, right? Like Hebrew scriptures, you would read right to left. This is the way you read the commentary. And sometimes I'm reading the commentary and I'm, it's, it, gets really, it gets really confusing. But in, in this commentary, right, the writers say this regarding this this phrase that God is going to destroy them with the earth, right? So the phrase, destroy them with the earth, was interpreted that the topsoil of the earth was to be removed. And then the, the writer says this, this reflects the biblical idea that moral corruption physically contaminates the earth, which must be purged of its pollution. Let me say that last part again. This reflects the biblical idea that moral corruption physically contaminates the earth, which must be purged of its pollution. Okay. Here's why I think this is important. Because I don't, such, I don't believe in anything, any such thing as private morality. Right? My mentor used to say this. He said, private bitterness affects the universe. Right? So you're bitter at somebody and you just think it's you and your kind of issue. It affects the universe, right? That's what Genesis 6, uh, 13 is telling us. We've been such baptized in this rabid, individualistic, it's just you and your sin and you and your relationship with Jesus and you and, yeah, occasionally, like, it kind of affects maybe a, a spouse or a family member or someone that I don't like. But we have such rabid individualism that we don't understand what Genesis is talking about here. We don't understand what this commentary is talking about that says... Um, that the, the biblical idea is that moral corruption for each one of us physically contaminates the earth. That's a heavy load to bear, isn't it? Moral corruption physically contaminates the earth and it must be purged of its pollution, right? And it's a vivid reminder to us. I think that this, this Noah narrative is a vivid reminder to us how deeply connected we are, right? Not only to one another, but to this earth, to the world around us, to the universe. As my mentor said, private bitterness affects the universe, right? That might be something to talk about in the discussion at the end. Okay, one last piece. Bible, Aaron, you gave your Bible trivia? All right, here's mine. How long were they in the ark for? And we all know 40 days. We all know like in the 40 days of raining, right? How long were we actually in the ark? How long? Two years. Two years? I mean, you're not that far off. 
Some, I know some of you guys got the notes, so. It was one year, right? It was one, I'm calling it, Actually, I wanted to write. I call it one long year. Now, here's where I bring this up. I don't know, when I encountered that they were in the ark for a year, I hope that this doesn't kind of like over-spiritualize it or, you know, stretch the analogy too far. It has felt a bit like being in an arc for the last, uh, has it been seven months, right? Seven months. Um, I mean, think about it. You have been pretty much for the, maybe more recently, not as much, but at the very beginning, you're pretty much locked in your home with your family, with if you had pets, you had pets, you're sheltering in place, you're quarantined. And, and all around us, there, there was flood, there was chaos, there was, you know, there was, the coronavirus that was, could get you at any moment, right? And I understand that this is a bit of a stretch of analogy. I just had been thinking about this phrase that they were in this ark for a year. What was it like in month seven for them to still be in this thing? What was it like 10 months to have no, like, no perspective of anything outside of the ark, right? And as, as again, if, if we use this maybe kind of in our contemporary situation, here we are, you and I, kind of living in this ark, right? Um, a lot of us are, I mean, I know our family is, we're all home together, right? Pretty much all the time, school, work, meals, like, you know, for the most part, we're all home together. Um, and you might feel a little disoriented. You might feel a little discouraged. Anybody felt discouraged through this time, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I was just kind of thinking like, okay, so if we're in this arc, if, if this is the time, if this is the season that God's kind of called us into, how do, we, how do we manage through this? How do we get through this? And there's two things that, that came to mind is, is the covenant with instruction and then the covenant with perspective. Genesis 6.18, if you got that one. You know, back in the day when it was so easy, I just had a little button and I would just click it and it would come right up there on the screen. It was so easy. My Bible pages were flying all over the place. We'll make it. So Genesis 6.18, here's where I talk about covenant with instruction, promise with instruction, um, uh, salvation with instruction. You know, when you, when you imagine this story, when you close your eyes and you begin to enter this story and you kind of use that that right brain is the right, the right to the creative side, right? The right to creative side. When you use that right brain side, and think about the story. So Noah, you know, they get into the ark, they shut up the door, all the animals are in there, and then the rain comes, right? And if at first it just kind of starts raining, um, and then maybe the ground covers, maybe the ground gets a little muddy, right? Maybe then it's about maybe an inch of rain, and Noah's kind of looking over the side of the boat thinking, well, we're going to need a little bit more rain than that, right? 
But then imagine the rain hits three feet or four feet or 10 feet. And I would imagine when I was thinking about Noah, I was thinking about him thinking as that boat began to creak and bow and ebb up and down in the storm and kind of being tossed around by the wind. I guarantee you, because I'm assuming Noah was, you know, Noah's human just like us. He probably had a couple panic moments at some point, right? Where he thought, I don't know if this boat's going to hold. I don't know if this thing's going to if this thing's going to last. I don't know what kind of storm is coming, right? But then I wonder if Noah thought to himself, God, I listened to what you said. I followed your instructions. I know that you spoke to me and I acted on those words. And maybe that brought Noah, maybe as he thought about the the covenant with instruction. So in in, in 6.18, the Bible says, um, I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. You are to bring the ark, the the two by two, the, the birds, the animals. And he says, you are to take the food. And then it says in 22, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And maybe he just thought like, yeah, I did it right. I stood by it. And here's why I say this, right? Here's why I say this covenant with instruction. Um, Some people say that, Eugene Peterson says that pastors only have one sermon, right? They just preach it a hundred different ways, right? I think that my one sermon has always been listening to God and then responding appropriately, Right? How many times have you heard me say something along those lines? Listening to God and then responding appropriately. And it's exactly what we see Noah do in this sense. He listens to God's instructions and then he responds. And so when you're in that ark, when you're thinking and you're watching the floodwaters rise around you, right? And then you think to yourself, God, I know what you've spoken to me. And I've responded appropriately to this. God, I know the word that you've given me for this season. I know how you instructed me to build this boat. I know what you've, how you've instructed me to lead my family or to be in this situation. And now I'm going to sustain myself in the midst of all that on that word, right? It's covenant with instruction. And then the second piece about this, and this is Genesis 9, 11, and 13, This covenant with promise, right? So in Genesis 9, 13, on the flip side of the flood, as they're exiting the boat, uh, again, Yahweh speaking, I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I've come, I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and earth. So here we get to the wonderful Sunday school rainbow part where we're going to get some construction paper out and some glue and make some rainbows. But we get to this. We get to this end part and there's this covenant with promise. And Noah comes out of this thing and, and not that he's perfect, right? We know that just 
chapter 10, he just blows it, right? There's this kind of weird situation with him and his sons. So it's not that he comes out perfect, but I would imagine that throughout Noah's life, as he looked back into what had happened, right? Into this whole flood narrative, into the year on the boat, into the animals, he lived with a different perspective, a different orientation towards the world. So you and I, as we think about, again, this one long year of the coronavirus of, man, it seems like the election season has been one long year, just kind of the chaos and, and, and the confusion and the fear and the angst and the trepidation all around us. I would ask us to think through this season, pay attention into this season because God is speaking covenants and he's speaking salvation and he's speaking truth to you that you will be able to then carry with you to look back Right, that you'll look back and say, God, if you took me through that situation, you can take me through this next situation, this next season, what's going to happen next in my life. The promise that God gave Noah, the promise that God spoke to us now, is speaking to us now, then we can take that into the next season and use that. But again, and I've said this just again and again and again, it all starts with this listening. Just creating that time, creating that space for us to hear the voice of the Lord. Let's do that just for a minute or so this morning. And not that, you know, every, not, not every time you close your eyes and bow your head or just say, God, speak to me. Um, it, it's not every time he just comes audibly with a booming voice. Um, sometimes it's just a gentle nudge. Sometimes he puts something in our hearts. Sometimes he shows us something around us. Um, But Lord, we're going to take just a moment or two because listening to your voice is the most important thing that we can do. Maybe you spoke to us this morning through through the music. Maybe you spoke to us through the Eucharist. Maybe there was something in the sermon that you spoke to us. Maybe we've been looking around at creation. Maybe we've seen the little kids playing on the park. And, And God, again, to hear your voice, that that would guide us and sustain us that that would um, direct where we're going, who we're becoming, and how we're orienting ourselves in this world, in this chaos, this confusion, um, this dystopia. God, we are asking for your voice to speak to us. Speak to my brothers and sisters now. Thank you, Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Just take a minute or so and just have some silence. Um, Pray to the Lord. Ask him to speak to you. And then uh, we'll do just maybe a minute or two of discussion.